Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that On Becoming is on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. Our email address is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them our way. If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. To those of you who've subscribed or follow us, to those who've written, and to those who've decided to support us, let me just say thank you so much. This is the second episode this week on forgiveness. It's a continuation of the previous episode, which means you probably would want to listen to that before you listen to this episode. Just as a reminder, we've been discussing what I call faux forgiveness, which is stuff that looks like it might be true forgiveness, but at least as far as I can tell, doesn't quite reach actual forgiveness. For instance, a good deal of the previous episode had to do with moving on. The idea that forgiveness just means something like getting over it or forgetting about it. I point out that in many situations, this may be the best you can do, at least for now. Further, there are cases in which people who have wronged you who don't either realize that they've wronged you, which is often their fault and not yours, or they simply don't care and have no desire for reconciliation. So I'm not against trying to move on, except in the sense that it's not forgiveness, which actually requires that one deal with the wrong that's been done or has been done to you. The problem is that moving on just sweeps things under the rug. Those things can stay there for a long time. However, as I pointed out in the episodes on religious trauma, our intuitive brains are really bad at forgetting about having been hurt. We hold on to these things, and not dealing with them is only a short-term strategy. Then we started to talk about memory and how it evolves over time. Let me start this episode by repeating the last part of what I said in the previous episode. Memory, like everything else, is constantly in motion. Oddly enough, we can maintain the spirit of resentment, even the spirit of revenge, long past the time when we remember what had happened to us. We can still hate someone even though we no longer really know what it was that he did. But we can also come to forget the offense at some point in time. And remembering, of course, is not a completely passive act. We can choose how closely to hold our memories. We can make decisions to minimize memories. At stake here is not merely memory, but personal identity. When I first started working on this theme, my new passport arrived. Looking at the two passports, I'm delighted to say that the picture in the new one looks a lot better than the one in the old one. The explanation of that would take a little while, but I'll just say that I see two different people. Derrida makes the, I think, really important distinction between the future, le futur, and l'avenir. The first The futur refers to the aspect of the future that you somewhat control. That sense is about making plans and following steps towards a future moment, getting a degree, reaching a certain milestone in your life, whatever that might be. L'avenir is the future that you can't imagine, but that happens anyway, while you're busy making other plans, as the saying goes. The self who received the passport in 2009 could never imagine that he would end up living in Scotland eight years later. I want to go back to Anne of Green Gables. Both Anne and Gilbert grow up. Matthew dies of a heart attack, and so Anne is left with just Marilla as her guardian. 
In a moment of tenderness that's kind of uncharacteristic for Marilla, she tells Anne that she had been courted by Gilbert's father, but they had quarreled, and Marilla was unable to forgive him, something which she now deeply regrets. About this time, Gilbert is given the position of schoolmaster in Avonlea, where Anne and Gilbert grow up. But knowing that Matthew is no longer around to tend the farm, Gilbert goes to the Avonlea trustees and tells them that he would like Anne to have the job he has already been given so she can stay in town and help Marilla run the farm. Not long after, Anne and Gilbert meet by chance, and Anne extends a hand of friendship to Gilbert. That begins their relation as friends. At some point in time, Anne comes to realize that she was in love with Gilbert, though it also takes him quite some time for him to admit that he is in love with her. Lucy Maud doesn't tell us exactly how this change in their relationship comes about, but I think it has to do with the evolution of memory and self. That is, they are now different people. As much as the reader is delighted to know that they finally reconciled, the question can be asked whether forgiveness has actually taken place. I think there may be textual evidence to that effect, but here's the problem. Forgiveness can never simply be the passing of time. The deed is not undone because we no longer remember it either as strongly as once did or even at all. That most everyone no longer even remembers the evil done to you in the second grade does not make that evil any less. There's nothing morally significant about the passage of time that miraculously changes evil into good. To be sure, there are things that we may, in hindsight, see as having a good-term effect. Joseph tells his brothers that even though you intended to harm me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. But God bringing about good from evil in no way transubstantiates evil into good. My worry is that what happens between Anne and Gilbert is that they come to appreciate each other. They're the two smartest and best-looking kids in the school, and so they let bygones be bygones. Don't get me wrong here. I'm all for reconciliation in whatever form it comes. We should welcome reconciliation with open arms, not throw a monkey wrench into the gears. But is this forgiveness, one may ask? In one sense, I think it may be. For if you think about it, pulling Anne's hair and calling her carrots is not exactly dark, insidious evil. And Anne's reaction, calling him a mean, hateful boy, seems, at the very least, exaggerated. So perhaps what takes place is that they both come to realize, literally, how childish they have been. That recognition doesn't so much require forgiveness as a more grown-up appraisal of the situation. However, that kind of explanation works for what turns out to be, in the grand scheme of things, relatively insignificant. For significant evil, remembering is absolutely necessary. One cannot properly forgive what one now merely forgets. Forgive what? Oh. I've forgotten. Having a relatively clear idea of the wrong perpetrated is actually necessary for there to be any meaningful forgiveness. If I say, oh well, whatever it is you did to me, I'm not really sure at this point, whatever it is, you're forgiven. Then the sense of forgiveness here is at best pathetic and at worst just another form of moving on. It does not take either the perpetrator of the wrong or the person wrong seriously. It's like saying, that's interesting, to a student who says something clearly wrong in class, which ends up being a paternalistic dismissal and is 
unlikely to be helpful to the rest of the class who may not know what to think if something clearly wrong is affirmed in some way. So forgiveness cannot simply be forgetting. However, I think that forgetting is a byproduct that often comes from genuine forgiving. When we forgive, we release the other from the bondage of guilt and ourselves from our vow to keep the grudge alive and well. As the grudge dies, we can move on beyond holding a grudge, and thus our memories are reformed. We now see the person differently, just as we would if we were to love our enemies. However, it is not as if we have simply forgotten. Instead, we no longer count this wrong against the other person. Love, as St. Paul says, does not keep a record. Neither does forgiveness. Our third form of full forgiving is what I call changing the calculation. I think there's an important connection to draw here to Stoicism, although that might seem strange at first glance. Whatever else Stoicism is, and I realize that it's multiple and varied, it is a strategy for dealing with pain. The Stoics were well aware that human life is filled with suffering. Their strategy is to mitigate that suffering by limiting one's concern about it. Consider what Epictetus says in the third chapter of the Enchiridion. With regard to whatever objects give you delight, are useful, or are deeply loved, remember to tell yourself of what general nature they are, beginning from the most insignificant things. If, for example, you are found of a specific ceramic cup, remind yourself that it is only ceramic cups in general of which you are fond. Then, if it breaks, you will not be disturbed. If you kiss your child or your wife, say that you only kiss things which are human, and thus you will not be disturbed if either of them dies. One has to admit that, at least in one sense, this is a brilliant strategy. As long as you're able to put on the armor of self-protection, nothing can harm you. While I find many aspects of Stoicism appealing, I consider this to be a move that is ultimately impossible and in many ways undesirable. Nietzsche makes the observation that compassion or pity, he always uses the term midleiden, is exercised naively by people who simply do not understand what is really at work in such actions. Well, one of Nietzsche's points is that pity is often, even usually, a way of exercising superiority over others. The other is that it's bad math. To quote him, Pity, mitleiden, insofar as it really causes suffering, leiden, increases the amount of suffering in the world. The point couldn't be simpler. Why multiply suffering? If I suffer alongside you, there are now two people suffering instead of one. The numbers simply don't make any sense. In response, Nietzsche advocates what is, in effect, a stoic approach. In order to minimize pain, I don't allow myself to truly suffer alongside the other, even if I might pretend to do so as a way of being gracious. Where I think both the Stoics and Nietzsche are wrong is that suffering alongside is not merely the price we pay for friendship and community. It's also fundamentally about what being human and loving other people is about. But I can try to keep myself from suffering in the first place. If I can think of a spouse or a child as things that I shall hold only very lightly, surely I can minimize the importance of the harm that is done to me, or take it very lightly. Of course, this strategy would work equally well for one who wrongs another. That thing? Oh, it wasn't a big deal. She should just learn to stop being so sensitive. But it's the person wrong can say the same thing to myself. 
It wasn't all that bad. I shouldn't make such a big deal out of things. A way of illustrating this strategy is the debate you can find on the internet about the use of you're welcome versus it's no problem. One could argue that you're welcome makes your actions seem too important. If I hold the door open for you, your welcome seems a little much as a response to thank you. I haven't really done that much of anything. It's nothing. De nada, one says in Spanish. In Dutch, one can say gedaan, which means glad to help. But one can also say geen dank, which literally means no thanks, but actually means something like no need to thank me. One can also say geen beswaar, which is no problem. In Australian English, and increasingly in other parts of the English-speaking world, one says, no worries. The minimization strategy has a lot going for it. By mentally minimizing the damage done, I can slough off something as not worthy of taking seriously. As should be clear, there are multiple ways in which one might minimize a wrong done, and these could all be utilized alongside of one another. Put together, they represent a powerful way to avoid forgiving because one is left thinking that Really, there's nothing to forgive. As it turns out, this strategy does tell us something about real forgiveness, but in reverse. Real forgiveness demands acknowledging the gravity of what has been done. If I forgive you for something that I consider to be almost nothing, then my forgiveness is really the equivalent of no worries or denada. But then there really isn't anything to forgive. So forgiveness is actually impossible. You can't really forgive something that's nothing. Our fourth candidate for forgiving is what I'm calling excusing by understanding. For this point, I am deeply indebted to the work of Vladimir Yankalevich. To be fair, his thinking on forgiveness is the richest and most helpful of anything I've ever found, precisely because it is so complex and nuanced. The second chapter of his book, Forgiveness, that's the whole title, it's published by the University of Chicago Press in case you want to read it in English translation. The second chapter in that book is titled The Excuse to Understand is to Forgive. Now, I'm not going to be following Yankalevich's account here exactly, but my reflections have clearly been affected by his thought. Overall, the problem with understanding as forgiveness is twofold. One is that it fails to take the other person seriously as a moral agent. Like the comment in class that it is missed with, that's interesting, the other person is either seen not really to have free will or else so obtuse that this is the best he or she could do. Let's start with the first aspect. I assume that most of us understand that there are many structural aspects of Western society that deprive people either of opportunities or else of recognizing those opportunities, which is not the same thing, but has the same result. For a black male growing up on the south side of Chicago, joining a gang may seem like the best thing to do or even the only realistic thing to do. It is important not to lose sight of this point. Assuming that the teenager simply should get a paper route and make money the old-fashioned way is problematic in so many different respects. Those who grow up without something like an intact family or parents that actually care if you do your homework are severely disadvantaged. Even the kid who rises to the challenge and gets all A's in her classes may still not be able to go to college. Years ago, I was making this point in an intro class, and a student whose mother had escaped from the hood told of someone he knew who was still in the hood who got all A's in school but only got a 16 on the standardized test known as the ACT, 
Alas, that really isn't high enough to get you into a school that we call competitive. My point here is that here's a kid who did everything required of him, and it still wasn't enough. These kinds of examples might cause one to despair, but they should not cause one merely to forgive. At most, it lessens the severity of the offense, sometimes greatly so, but that's not the same as forgiveness. If we turn to the second aspect, that of being at least seemingly thick-headed or dim-witted, we can see that making a judgment in these kinds of cases is kind of tricky. We hold people culpable for some things and not for others. What is one to do with an older relative who habitually makes racist or sexist or homophobic comments, and no matter how much you try and correct him or her and try to explain why he or she shouldn't say these kinds of things, he or she still doesn't get it. I'm talking about something that is, at least as far as I can see, really common. It's hard to know in a situation like this how much to blame such a person. Consider the specific example of the apology given by Harvey Weinstein. The first lines go as follows. I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior in workplaces were different. That was the culture then. I've since learned that that's not an excuse in the office or out of it. Weinstein is hardly absolved from guilt, since that would be like saying, and I've used this example before, that before the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, it was okay to own slaves. But he's right that the rules were different. People of his era came of age when people routinely said the N-word or the other F-word. But understanding this reality doesn't equate to forgiving. At best, we take that into consideration when we judge his behavior in the same way that judges routinely take into account motives, background, and various factors that might have shaped criminal behavior. It shouldn't be hard to see, though, that the danger is that we end up forgiving someone simply because we think that person had no other choice or was too stupid to understand that what he or she did was wrong. Excusing my understanding is tempting. It's much easier for all the parties involved to say that, given the circumstances, oh, the person really isn't guilty. As I've said, I think this ultimately does not take the offender seriously as a moral agent. But it's also not forgiving, since forgiving must be about an offense. If we say that the agent really is an agent, then there's no one to blame for the wrong done. We might say it's society's fault, not his. Earlier I mentioned that a significant problem with forgiveness is intersubjectivity. In this case, the fact that we are not nearly as autonomous as Kant thinks that we should be. I think Hegel provides an important corrective to Kant, for he recognizes that even the recognition of someone as a moral agent is dependent upon other people seeing that person as a moral agent. Further, Hegel realizes that we're mutually constituted in the sense that who I am is very much connected to the identities of my community, or maybe I should say communities. While this complicates blame and culpability, and the legal systems of most countries take this to, into account in varying degrees, we can't simply say that one is mutually constituted and thus inculpable. There's much more that one could say here, but I want to close by considering one last version of faux forgiveness. Our last form is what I call balancing the books. Jacques Derrida writes that to forgive the forgivable, the venial, the excusable, what one can always forgive is not to forgive. 
In the same text, he speaks of conditional forgiveness, and he gives examples of these, excuse, regret, prescription, amnesty, and so forth. We've already looked at excuse. Those forgiven because they express regret, thinks Derrida, are forgiven conditionally. In contrast, Derrida thinks that genuine forgiveness, assuming he says <laughs> there is such a thing, is only possible in the face of the unforgivable. I don't think that Derrida's right about this, but the point he is making is well worth considering. Here's the example he gives. Listen to me. I'm begging your pardon. Wait, don't leave. I'm begging your pardon. Pay attention. Pay attention to me. I'm begging your pardon. Derrida's response is almost comic. This can become an odious strategy or an odious and ridiculous calculation of false mortification that can go as far as tears. And we are very familiar with the situations in which the person who does this is pain in the neck and you pretend to forgive him or her in order to change the subject and to interrupt the conversation. Okay, give me a break. I'm not even accusing you. Enough already. Okay, I forgive you, but I don't want to see you again. My mind is elsewhere. Let's talk about something else. I don't even take you seriously enough to be accusing you. There's a lot going on in this passage. One way of reading this is that the person apologizing is simply insincere. What looks and sounds like an apology really isn't one. It's hard to see that a response to fake apologizing could be real forgiving. More likely, one is simply going to brush this off. However, it's the second aspect that I find more interesting. We've all had the experience of people apologizing for things that don't really seem like anything one really needs to apologize for. I'm not talking about someone stepping on your toe and saying sorry. That's so insignificant that it's not worth discussing. Instead, someone might say something and realize suddenly that you might find this offensive. But then it turns out that you don't find it offensive at all. Then apologies, even if they're well-meaning, seem quite unnecessary, especially if the person keeps on apologizing. Derrida points out that one might say the words of forgiveness just to make the other person happy or else make her go away and stop bothering you. But that's not forgiveness either. Yet this point also raises a really interesting question related to the whole distinction between conditional and unconditional forgiveness. If someone does something to you that really does merit an apology and then proceeds to apologize profusely, perhaps getting down on his knees to beg your forgiveness, promising never to do such a thing again, expressing deep remorse and sadness, isn't this more like a business or economic transaction than forgiveness? It seems like it's really just a matter of balancing the books. Person A has done something bad. You, as person B, have the expectations of regarding just how much groveling is sufficient for you to relent in your rancor and forgive. Perhaps you expect a certain period of groveling during which you can continue to remind person A just how horrible he is. Yet perhaps to your surprise, person A perfectly complies with your demands. I bring up this point as a way to end my talk because it gets at something profound about what forgiveness really is. I was talking to a New Testament scholar and asked, what's the biblical view of forgiveness? The quick and sure answer was this, you must first repent, and only then is forgiveness possible. That is, if and only if sufficient repentance is offered, is forgiveness possible. Otherwise, it's off the table. 
I have great questions about whether there is truly something like a unified theory of forgiveness that can be found in either the Hebrew or Christian scriptures, let alone a unified theory that runs from the beginning of one to the end of the other, though I admit I haven't had a go at it. I'd be very interested to hear from people who think they know what this is. But let me end with a story. There are many kinds of examples that come to mind regarding such conditionality. One that is likely to resonate with many people is that of Cory ten Boom, or it's actually Boom in, in uh, Dutch. She and her sister Betsy were arrested and put in a concentration camp in Ravensbrück for having hidden Jews in the basement of their house. After the war, Cory came in contact with one of the most brutal guards from Ravensbrück, who stretched out his hand to her. Here's what she says about that in an essay titled, I'm Still Learning to Forgive. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supplied the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand in the one stretched out to me, 
And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my entire being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. To such a dramatic and moving account, one can hardly add much of anything. But I do want to close with a question. If that guard had come over to Corey after the meeting and didn't ask for her forgiveness, even though he made it clear that he repudiated his former self and had undergone a dramatic change, should she have forgiven him anyway? That's a question for you to ponder. That's all for today's episode. But let me add that we are not yet done with forgiveness. And of course, in our own lives, we are never done with forgiveness. Next week's episodes will focus on the aspect of what I call forgiveness oppression that stems from demands for unconditional forgiveness, which is the idea that you should forgive someone even if they haven't asked forgiveness or they continue to treat you badly and or are completely lacking remorse or perhaps even unwilling to admit that they've done anything wrong. My worry is simply this. If you've been wronged by someone, that person may expect you to forgive them so they can get off the hook. I use the word oppression because the expectation that you should just forgive no matter what can easily become a secondary form of abuse. In other words, you've been wronged and now someone is pressuring you to forgive that person. As we will see, Jesus actually sets out some guidelines for forgiveness, and I think they're very sensible guidelines. If you found today's episode helpful or interesting, do consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both of them is our email address, unbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.